This is God's word. Thank you, Claire and Aiden. Has anybody else ever wondered who were those other people that Cain was afraid were going to attack him, seeing as how they were the very first two sons ever born? I'll leave that to John to figure out in a future sermon, but... Uh, Friends, it's great to get to be with you this morning. My name is Charlie Dunn, and if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, then you know uh, we have been in this teaching series on what historically have been known as the seven deadly sins. Uh, Today, our sin of the day, if you can call it that, is wrath, uh, anger. And, you know, a few months ago, uh, I remember one day driving home uh, after having picked up our son from daycare and I was on Central Expressway that day, always a bad idea at that time of day, and um, there was a lot of traffic, more so than usual. We were barely even moving, just inching along, and of course that was frustrating, Uh, but this is not a story about my road rage or anger in driving. Actually, it's about another driver who apparently got so mad, so frustrated with this other driver on Central Expressway that he took out a gun. Um, He shot him and he killed him uh, right around the Forest Lane exit on Central Expressway, which was why uh, the traffic was so backed up as I was coming home that day. And I think most of us, if we're honest, can recognize the fact that we are typically at our worst when we are the angriest. And that of all the seven deadly sins... Without a doubt, the one that leads to the most bloody and deadly outcomes is wrath. Wrath or anger. And I know maybe some of you are asking the question, it's a question I certainly have asked before. Okay, but what's the difference between just getting angry versus being wrathful? You know, is is there a good kind of anger? Is there an appropriate kind of anger, of righteous anger versus wrath? It's, it's a pretty valid question. And, you know, as I've studied for the sermon, even as I've just reflected on this topic and how to live in obedience to Jesus, I've, I've learned, I've recognized that actually Christians are divided on this question. But really, there are two camps, there are two strands that run all throughout Christian history and tradition. So on the one hand, there are Christians who would say that anger really is just a neutral emotion. Same as being sad or being happy or sorrowful. Anger is a neutral emotion. And so therefore, the question to ask is whether it is good anger or bad anger. Are you angry for the right reasons? And are you channeling and responding to that anger in the right ways? Uh, Other Christians would actually take that a step further. And they would say, actually, anger is a necessary corollary of love. So if you really love someone or you really love something and you see that being hurt or damaged, well, then anger is a rightful response to that. And still other Christians actually go a step further and would suggest that actually anger can be harnessed. It can be channeled to work for good to contend against the evil or injustice that we see within our world. And so there are some Christians who would say, of course, there is such a thing as righteous anger. 
And you know, if you had asked me up until a couple of years ago, I probably would have agreed with that. It makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of logic to it. I mean, just think about when you're reading in the New Testament in the life of Jesus. Jesus, who in many ways, you probably wouldn't say Jesus was an angry person. You know, he's described more often as being gentle and humble in his relations with people. But certainly, aren't there a couple of times in the Gospels where Jesus gets angry? Like when he flips over the tables because he's angry with the money changers who have turned God's temple into a place for their own profit. Or in Mark chapter 3, there's this scene where, where Jesus is angry, we're told, with the Pharisees because they are so indifferent to the suffering of this man that Jesus wants to heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus gets angry, and then certainly doesn't God get angry in the Bible, right? Doesn't he get, if you're reading through the Old Testament, you know there are times God gets angry over injustice. He gets angry over sin. The Bible speaks of, of God's anger coming forth. It's described as God's wrath. Now, his wrath is not, you know, fly off the handle, temper tantrum. It's measured, it's patient. And yet, nevertheless, God is described as getting angry over sin. And so if God gets angry over sin and injustice, well, then shouldn't we? Of course, there's such a thing as righteous anger. In fact, whenever I get angry, I very rarely do not think that it is righteous anger. I mean, you can just ask my wife, Brandy, in our home, we have a term for when I get, um, we call it Charlie's righteous indignance. And I'll tell you, that is not a term of endearment. Almost all the time that I get angry, I feel like I can give you a great explanation and rationalization and justification for why I feel that it is appropriate for me to be responding in that way. I would happily give that to you. But, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a man um, who I admire, who I respect, a very godly, humble Christian man older than me who came to me one day and he said, Charlie, I read this book. It's called Unoffendable uh, by an author named Brant Hansen. He said, would you read it and would you tell me what you think? Now, either he genuinely wanted my opinion or that's like Christian code for I think you would really benefit <laughs> from reading this book. But uh, either way, I read it and I did really benefit from reading it. It was the first time that I had really considered what does the whole of the Bible say about our anger? And as I read through this book, I found myself increasingly persuaded that while God certainly is able to handle his anger, I don't believe that we are very well able to handle ours. That's not to say that we don't get angry. Let's be honest. Let's be realistic. The Bible is very realistic that certainly even as mature followers of Jesus, there are moments we get upset, we get angry, sometimes for righteous reasons, sometimes for very valid and legitimate reasons. And yet, nevertheless, I've become increasingly persuaded that we can't really trust ourselves when we are angry. I've become persuaded that our anger is not something that we are very well equipped to handle. That if we don't let go of our anger, that if we hold on to our anger, that it will be destructive to us. Did you notice what the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 when 
Aiden read that for us. You know, sometimes people focus on where Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. And they say, see, there's the justification, right? You can be angry just as long as it's not in a sinful way. But notice what he goes on to say. He says, in your anger, do not sin. And then he says, do not let the sun set on your anger. Meaning anger is so volatile, it's so potentially destructive to you and other others that you can't risk going another day without dealing with it, without getting rid of it. And then if you want the most direct command that Paul gives in this passage, what does he say? Verse 32, he says, get rid of all anger, rage, malice. I mean, don't you wish he had just said, get rid of your unrighteous anger? I could work with that. I'd say, I got plenty of righteous anger that I am entitled to hold on to. He just says, get rid of all of your anger. And and so what I want to do in this sermon this morning is I do not want to try and distinguish between wrath versus righteous anger, but rather I want to exhort you in the way that Paul does simply to be a people who are seeking to process and deal with and get rid of all of the anger that we may harbor and hold in our hearts. And I want to do that by asking three questions. Here they are. First, why should we seek to get rid of all of our anger? Why is our anger so destructive that we should get rid of all of it, um, and, and including the righteous anger? Um, secondly, secondly, um, where does that anger really come from? When, when we're regularly experiencing anger, um, where does that come from? And then finally, how can we begin to uproot the anger that we discover uh, in our hearts? So let's walk through Uh, those three questions together. So first, why should we want to get rid of all of our anger? You know, as as Paul exhorts us. And um, notice with me in this story that Claire read for us, the story of Cain and Abel. Um, That Abel, you know, is is frustrating to to Cain and and God's response to Abel such that Cain gets really angry, verse 5 says. He was angry, his face was downcast. God comes to Cain. What does he say to him? He says, why are you angry? And then get this, he says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. In other words, God is saying, your anger desires to overtake you. You're angry, and that sin in your heart of anger, you're at risk of it having you, which means it consuming you. And you see, that's the nature of anger. Anger is consuming. There's a reason why in the Bible, the metaphor most frequently used to describe our anger is that of fire. Fire is volatile. Fire is destructive. Fire is consuming And when you're angry, first and foremost, what happens is when you're responding out of anger, that anger consumes your vision, meaning you can't see reality rightly anymore when you're reacting out of anger. You can't see other people. You can't see yourself. You can't see the world in a fair and reasonable and accurate way when you're responding out of anger. Let me show you what I mean. So somebody acts in a way that upsets you that angers you, that frustrates you, what we tend to do is we take that angering behavior and what do we do with it? We blow it up. 
we magnify it, we enlarge it, we expand it until really that's all that we see of that person. We reduce that person to the angering behavior. So somebody lies to us, what do we say? They're a filthy liar. Somebody maybe makes a mistake at work that harms us in some way. Why? Well, because they're utterly incompetent. Somebody cuts us off in traffic. Why? Because they're completely oblivious. Somebody says something that offends or insults us. Why? Because they're an absolute jerk, right? We take the behavior and we end up reducing the person to that behavior because we enlarge and expand. You could imagine maybe Cain looking at his brother Abel. Abel didn't even do anything to Cain, did he? But in the way that God praises and favors Abel's sacrifice over Cain's, you can imagine Cain sitting there saying, that Abel, he's an arrogant prick. He's so full of himself, right? He thinks he's better than all of us. You take the behavior and you magnify it. But here's the problem with that. If you were to take that mirror and turn it back on yourself, right? If we were to look back on our own selves and somebody were to say, well, hey, do you ever lie? Well, yeah, sometimes. Do you ever drive distractedly? Yes. Do you ever make mistakes at work without a doubt? Do you ever say things that that might insult or offend somebody else? Sure. Then he asks the question, well, why? Well, it's complicated. Right? We've got our explanation. We've got our reasons. Yes, I kind of shaded the truth there, but I had this reason and that reason. But what we never say is I lied because I'm a filthy liar. I made that mistake because I'm utterly incompetent. No, I'm three-dimensional. Right? I'm complex. I have lots of reasons for why I do what I do. But that other person, right, it's just because they're incompetent. We reduce the other person. So what happens when we're reacting out of our anger then is we are, are, are swollen with pride. We're swollen with self-righteousness. We're not looking at ourselves and our own sin accurately, which is why even if we've been wronged by somebody, I mean, very reasonably, you've been, you've been mistreated, you've been wronged, you've been treated unfairly. The problem is that what's going to happen is that our response to that, even when it's righteous anger, it's going to be disproportionate. We're going to go over the top. Um, it's why James, Jesus' brother, he says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If anybody ever thought that you could just harness your anger to work for righteousness and justice in the world, you're wrong. It will end up consuming you. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, there's no good in this world that could not be done better without anger. Martin Luther King Jr. says the same thing, by the way. We could look at a number of his quotes talking about how anger is not a good motivator for pursuing justice in the world because anger consumes our vision and then do you know what it does after that? Is it ends up consuming us. You know, one of the metaphors that psychologists have given us for thinking about our anger about 40 years ago, psychologists today would say is a terrible metaphor, is no longer a helpful, it was never a helpful way for thinking about how to deal with our anger. But maybe you've heard it before. It goes like this. You and I, when we think about our anger, should think of ourselves kind of like a boiling pot. So, you know, the more that you get frustrated and upset, it's like the temperature keeps going up and the water starts boiling more and more. And so if you've got water that's boiling on the stove, if you, if you, if you don't remove the lid from it, what's going to happen? 
right? It's going to burst out. The water's just going to overflow. And so what do you do? You lift up the lid. You vent to help bring down the temperature. That's what psychologists would say to do. So if you're really angry over something, you should go find a friend and vent to them. Tell them why you're so upset. And in the process of telling them about why you're so angry, the theory is that the temperature's supposed to go down. Or same thing, maybe you go find a punching bag and you just pound that bag and eventually the temperature will go down. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, there, there's an article in, in Psychology Today where there was a, a mom who, who was writing in and she was describing that, that when she had her three-year-old son struggling with anger, um, here's what her counselor said to do. Her counselor said, well, just let, give him an opportunity to vent that anger in a non-destructive way. So, you know, encourage him maybe to kick the furniture kick the sofa when, when he's angry. Well, she writes back later and she says, you know what? He's a grown man now. She said, he's still kicking the furniture, whatever's left of it. And then this gets worse. He said, she says, um, actually, he's kicking his wife. He's kicking his kids. Uh, recently, he kicked a television out a second story window that was closed. Friends, what happens actually is the more that you vent the more that you talk about why you're so angry, the more that you dwell on it and reflect on it and, and, and try to release, actually, it just grows. You're giving more oxygen to the fire. Your anger increases to where it starts to consume you. You know, of all of the different emotions that affect our bodies, anger is the worst for us. More than stress, more than anxiety, more than fear, um, nothing will put you at greater risk for heart disease and for heart attacks. Um, than anger. Anger starts to disintegrate your very body. Have you ever struggled to sleep at night because you're so angry over something? Some wrong or injustice that was done to you, it's consuming. You can't get it off your mind. Eventually, anger consumes us. Frederick Buechner, I think, captures this dynamic better than anybody. He says, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. Isn't that true, at least initially? That's why the, the movies that have like a revenge plot to them, you know, they gross the most in the box office because we put ourselves in that place. We think, man, wouldn't it be satisfying to get back at that person who has wronged me? Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun to lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel, both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Isn't that a powerful but turn a phrase at the end to recognize that our anger, eventually it consumes us. That's why Paul doesn't say, hey, just make sure that you're using your anger for a good end or just make sure that it's righteous anger. No, rather he says, get rid of it. Get rid of the anger. Get rid of the rage. Get rid of the malice. Don't go another night before you have dealt with that anger before God. Now, if you say, yeah, I recognize and I've seen how anger can be destructive in my own heart. I want to be able to do that. Well, then secondly, what we need to recognize, typically, where does our anger come from? When we're reacting in regularly uh, angry ways, why are we responding in that way? And I think this is where the Cain and Abel story can be really instructive 
for us. So you think about Cain. Why is it that Cain is so angry with his brother Abel? Well, we're told just a couple of verses before that both of them bring these offerings before God, right? And yet we're told that God favors Abel and his offering rather than Cain and his offering. Now, why? Why does God favor Abel's offering over Cain's? You ever asked that before? The answer is not obvious. It's very subtle in the text. Just just think about it. I mean, after all, both of them bring an offering, right? Both Cain and Abel believe in God. They both bring an offering to God. It's not as if Abel is like living a very moral and upstanding life and Cain is off, you know, doing all sorts of terrible things. They both bring the offering to God. They both believe in God. It's not as if Abel is a hard worker and Cain is lazy. No, he's working in the fields and and Abel's working with his flocks. It's not as if God is a picky eater. And he's like, well, you brought me vegetables, but he brought me steak. That's, you know, far better. It's not as if God prefers shepherds to farmers. So what is it? They both bring their offering. They both believe in God. Externally, you would not be able to tell a lot of difference, would you? But you see, the difference is very subtle, very intentionally so. Actually, it's important that this is one of the first stories in the whole Bible because this is a theme, actually, that you see running all throughout the Bible, namely that God is always far more concerned about what? The heart. God cares about our hearts. He cares about the motivation behind our behavior, not just the external behavior. And there's a difference in Abel and Cain's motivations for bringing their offerings, which is why Cain gets as angry as he does. So what is the difference in their motivation? Where do we see that? Again, it's very subtle. We really only just see this one differentiating phrase. We're told that when Abel brings his offering, that he brings what? The firstborn from among his flocks. Now, I'm not a rancher. I'm not a shepherd. But I understand that, that kind of at least in the ancient world, if you were a rancher or a shepherd, your annual income in many ways, was how many lambs, how many calves, how many colts were born in the course of that year as your flock was growing. And so there are really two ways that you could go about bringing your uh, offering to God then, aren't there? One way, probably the way that I would take, would be to wait until the end of the year and to say how many new you know, calves have been born, maybe 10 or 11. Okay, maybe I'll give one or two to God. The other approach is to bring the firstborn. That's a far more risky approach, isn't it? Because what if you only have like two or what if you only have five in the course of the year? That's like 50%. That's 20% of your annual income. That's a lot more. So there are two ways to approach this. But one approach is, is far more calculating. One approach is to say, okay, I'm going to give God what I need to give God in order for me to uphold my end of the bargain and for him to then have to uphold his. But the other approach that we see in Abel bringing the firstborn is far more open-handed. It's far more trusting, isn't it? It's far more grateful simply saying, God, all of this belongs to you and his willingness to bring the firstborn before God. You get a little bit more insight into Abel's motivation in Hebrews chapter 11. There we are told that Abel brought his offering in faith, whereas Cain did not. 
What, what does that mean? Here's what it means, friends. There are only two reasons why you would ever bring an offering to God. There are only two reasons why you would ever give something to God, only two reasons why you would ever do anything for God, e even in our obedience to God. Only two reasons. You know what they are? We either do something out of gratitude to God, or we do it to get something from God. Does that make sense? We either do it to get something from God or we do it out of gratitude to God. The gratitude approach says, look, God, all of this belongs to you. You're God, I'm not God. It all belongs to you. You have given it to me. It's yours to begin with. You are the God that I trust to take care of me. I trust you to provide for me. You are my God and I trust you to order my life in the way that you see fit. The other approach, though, is to say, I'm going to give something, I'm going to do something for God to try to get him in my debt so that God then has to give me the things that I'm wanting, in which case God isn't really your God, you're the God, right? He's not really your Savior. Maybe you're looking to something else to be your Savior. And let me tell you, if that's your approach to life, if that's the way that you're thinking about God, I guarantee that if you do not get those things that you think that you need to have to be happy, or if your agenda for your life is not playing out in the way that you think that it should, I guarantee you will get angry, right? You will get upset. There's a demandingness. There's a, there's a sense of entitlement. There's a sense of warrant, of feeling like, God, you owe me for things to work out the way that I want. And at the end of the day, it's really a question of the heart, right? It's where is your fundamental heart trust? Are you saying, God, you're God, not me. You get to decide how things in my life are gonna go. You really are the best thing that I could have. You're my savior, you're my God. I trust you to care for me and provide. Or are you saying, God, I think I know how life is supposed to go and I'm doing these things for you so that you're gonna give me the life that I want. If the latter, you're gonna be grumpy and angry like Cain, always feeling like life has not given you a fair deal. Versus Abel, right, where there's gratitude, there's joy, there's freedom, there's trust, depending upon your heart posture. That's really the fundamental root of why we respond with anger. And so the final question is, is how do we uproot that? How do we uproot the anger that we see in our hearts and in our lives? Let me just give you a couple of things practically. You know, one thing that I think is helpful to ask is just, are you taking care of your body? Do you ever find sometimes you're just more irritable when you feel bad? That's absolutely true. And so are you getting enough sleep? Are you exercising? Are you eating nutritious and healthful foods? I think we need to just consider the fact that we're embodied human beings. And sometimes that plays into our frustration and anger. Something else to think about is maybe keep a record. I, I did this, uh, this last week where I, I made a little note on my phone. Every time that I got angry or frustrated, I would just write down, why did I get frustrated? You know, if, if you look back at it, I think you'll be surprised. Gosh, man, that seems pretty trivial. Why did I react in the way that I did? But what was helpful was to see, are there any patterns of, of responding with anger at particular times? Maybe when you're driving to work in the morning, or maybe when you're dealing with a certain coworker, or maybe when you and your spouse are both trying to get dressed and ready and out the door for work and get your son off to daycare. I don't know who that's describing, but... 
that was true to my experience. I noticed, gosh, I'm repeatedly frustrated and irritable in the morning. And so simply just to say, God, I know that about myself. So let me just pray and invite you into those moments and say, help me to be more patient and loving and gentle. You know, and invite him in. Say, this is going to be a time of worship as I'm driving to work this morning. So, so those are just a couple of practical thoughts. But ultimately, anger, it's a heart level issue, isn't it? So you got to deal with it at a heart level. And I think that we see how to do that in the way that God approaches Cain in this story. God comes to Cain. What's the first question he asks? He says, Cain, why are you so angry? Do you ever stop and ask yourself that question? Well, because he cut me off or because she didn't do what I wanted her to do. That's like the surface level reason, but but at a deeper level, do you ever pray and, and, and maybe bring God in as if God were asking you that question, saying, why are you so angry? Are you seeking to be your own God? Are you angry because somebody violated the laws of God's kingdom? Or are you angry because they violated the laws of your kingdom? Like to say, why am I so angry? Is there something that has become so important to me? so significant to me that it's assumed an undue place of importance in my life that I'm really treating as if it were my God, as if it were my Savior. And it's blocked, it's threatened, and so I'm getting angry. Why am I responding with this anger? Great question to ask. And by the way, the fact that God asks Cain this question is very hopeful. Because if it's true that the reason you're angry is not just external to you, but that there's an issue in your heart for why you're so miserable, that means you can repent. That means you can change. God is inviting Cain into that opportunity for repentance. So to ask that question, why are you so angry? And to process and think about that, pray through that with God. God comes back to Cain. After Cain has killed his brother Abel, he hasn't repented. What does God say this time? He says, Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now, God is not looking for information. He knows where Abel is. He's looking for repentance. Even after Cain has committed this this incredibly heinous action of murdering his own brother, would you believe there's still time and opportunity for Cain to repent? Opportunity for him to say, how could I have done such an evil thing? Gosh, my anger has consumed me. I really have been seeking to be my own God rather than letting you be God in my life. But of course, Cain does not repent, does he? What is his response to God? He says, am I my brother's keeper? Can you imagine a more cold-hearted response? Am I Abel's babysitter? I'm not responsible for him. You just see the way that the anger has, has devoured him. It's consumed his heart. He doesn't repent. So what does God say back to him? He says, the blood of your brother Abel cries out from the ground. Do you know why Abel's blood cries out from the ground? It's because human beings are incredibly valuable to God. They are so precious to God. Therefore, whenever you and I react out of our anger and we hurt relationships or we hurt somebody's reputation or we we damage uh, people in our anger, it, 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 it's like it tears at the goodness of God's world. And for God not to do something, for God to just sort of sweep this under the rug, for God to ignore the wrong and the injustice that has been done, that would be for God to treat people like they were trash. 
to treat people as if they didn't matter. That's why Abel's blood cries out. It cries out for judgment. It says this deserves to be atoned for. This deserves to be made right. And when Cain refuses to repent, God takes him to the blood of his brother that cries out for judgment. But what would have happened? Let me end with this. What would have happened if Cain had repented? Or what would happen if you and I were to repent, even right now today, and we were to say, God, I'm sorry for the ways that I've responded out of anger. God, I recognize that I've been trying to be my own God. God, I trust you to order my life as you see best. You are my savior. Jesus, I'm repenting today of the anger in my heart. I'll tell you what God would do. He would take you to a pool of blood, but it would not be the blood of Abel. It would be the blood of Jesus. You know, the blood of Jesus cries out. It speaks as well. This is Hebrews 12, 24. It says, we have come to Jesus Christ, the mediator, and to the shed blood that speaks more graciously than the blood of Abel. Do you know what that means? It means that if the blood of Abel cries out for our judgment, the blood of Jesus, who died for our sin in our place, cries out for our forgiveness. It cries out for God to love us and embrace us and accept us because of what Jesus has done for us. And if you want to uproot your anger, I'll tell you the very best way you can do that is to go to the blood of Jesus shed for you. Because here's the thing, friends, how can we be harsher with others then God has been with us, God who is willing to suffer and die and humiliate himself in our place. How can we refuse to forgive other people when God has forgiven us in Christ? How can we hold on to our self-righteousness, defending that we're in the right when Jesus has given us his righteousness because we're not righteous? And how do we get to play the judge and condemn others? when Jesus was judged and condemned for us. Go to the blood of Jesus. If you want to overcome anger in your heart, go to him. Hear that word that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray as we come to the Lord's table this morning.